previously on Beta. Oh, have I got your attention now? Those turrets. I've never seen them before. That can't be Bridgeport. Your absolute demand that Darwin's fairy tale lie be treated as fact is at best laughable. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome to Beta. Today, actress and writer Ileana Douglas talks about the lore of Connecticut movies, like The Swimmer, starring Burt Lancaster. It's about, you know, what happened, these misplaced values, money, status, living in the right zip code, and what happens when you're stripped of all of that, and how you're shunned. Also, Devo's co-founder, Mark Mothersbaugh, on 50 years of de-evolution. But just being a lightning rod for hostility, with people that were that wrong, I felt like we had to be doing something right. And so it was inspiring in a way. But first, Henry Winkler. Henry is best known for his breakout role as Arthur Fonzarelli, also known as the Fonz, on the long-running hit TV series, Happy Days. Happy Days took place in Milwaukee. So that's why, if you're ever on the Riverwalk, you may come across a Cream City landmark, the Bronze Fawns statue. Henry has a reputation as the nicest man in Hollywood, so he'd fit right in here in the Midwest. We caught up with Henry to talk about his memoir, Being Henry, The Fawns, and Beyond. It's a propulsive page-turner in which he shares memories of his rough childhood, like living with undiagnosed dyslexia. He also opens up about the pressures of becoming the star of a show that he was not supposed to be the star of. And Henry addresses his Emmy-winning second act as Gene Cousineau in the hit HBO series, Barry. But his incredible journey all starts with the fawns. Henry takes us back to his famed audition at Paramount Studios in October 1973. I probably walked into the auditioning uh, holding area where all of the actors were, thinking, oh my God, why am I here? Every actor has been on television. Then it was my turn. I walk into a room with 11 people, Gary Marshall, Tom Miller, Tom Milkis, the head of casting of Paramount, assistance galore. And I auditioned for a brand new series. And this brand new series was, of course, Happy Days. Yes. Yeah. And you it was the biggest audition of your life. More than in, in so many ways. Yeah. Because out of that audition came my life in Hollywood. Out of that audition came my lifelong friendships with Ron, with Anson, Donnie, with Marion, the fabulous Ross. That show introduced me to the world. You want to be cool? You don't do nothing to nobody that you don't want them to do to you, huh? Can you dig that? <laughs> when you did the, your audition, you, you took some improv. Like you were working with a guy named Pascal and you went off script. Well, I went off script because that is, I'm so dyslexic. I cannot read and do something else off the page. So you memorize as quickly as you can. And I don't know why, but I changed my voice. 
when I walked in. I do not have the courage at that moment in my real life, but I did have the courage in my working life to take risks. I changed my voice and immediately started talking to everybody in the room. And I said to Pasquale, this lovely young man who's going to read with me, help me in the audition. I said, hey, don't look at me like that. You avert your eyes. Look at somebody else. And I was off. Then we finished. I had six lines. I threw the script up in the air. I sauntered out of that room. And two weeks later on my birthday, they called me and asked me if I wanted to be in the, in the show. My Yale guilt. Said, oh, oh, God, do our series. I don't know if I can do it. I was trained for the theater. you know. And I said, if you let me show the other side of this guy, the emotional side. They said yes. I said yes. And here I am sitting with you. Hey. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and here I am sitting with Henry Winkler. You say that it took you 50 years to realize that there really is a you inside you. Can you explain what you mean? I find that a fascinating thought. There are two components. One is I was severely dyslexic. I'm in the bottom 3% academically in the country. My parents, first generation, they just came from Europe, their education was everything. Education was a mountain I could not climb. They were dismayed, embarrassed, cruel, and punitive about my grades. I, I think that dyslexia also has an emotional component because you cannot figure life out or school out. You feel like you are nowhere. So the, the combination and then add to that the teachers. I think that the book actually is the journey of starting being who I thought I should be and working my way to becoming authentically who I am, which I'm still on the journey toward. Yeah, no, that's a great answer. And that's exactly right. That's it's what you saw, how you described the book. That's exactly what it is. And that's why it's so powerful. You didn't learn that you were severely dyslexic until you were 31. Yes, my stepson, my stepson, Jed, who was in the third grade, so uh, charming, so verbal so able to come to communicate with anybody couldn't write a sentence and i said everything to him that was said to me you're not living up to your potential stop being lazy go back to your room do it again couldn't do it had him tested everything they said about him i went oh i've got something with a name and i was so angry because all of the humiliation and the, the punishment and the not being able to watch TV and the grounding by the people 
who gave it to me because it's hereditary. Then I grew into maybe without the struggle, trying to survive, failing at everything, gave me the tenacity to be here today. Mm -hmm. So would that be fair to say, ideally, you would have found out earlier at a much earlier age that you were dyslexic? If somebody was aware of it, cared about it, looked to see who are you standing in front of me instead of a extension to make us proud. Yeah, yeah, very well said. Happy Days ran for 11 seasons. And during that time, your character became more popular than Ron Howard's character, Richie Cunningham. How did that dynamic impact your friendship? The fourth year, I think, of Happy Days, we did, I think it was the fourth year, we did a um, an episode or two episodes, the beginning of the fourth year on a dude ranch, which was a, a ranch outside of L.A. And Ron Howard drove me back in his little VW bug, the original bug. And I said, okay, we got to talk about this, Ron. We're really good friends. We're really good acting partners. You got to tell me how you feel. And he said, look, I was hired as the star of this show. You didn't do anything. You never flaunted your success. You're really good at what you do. You're good for the show. But it hurt my feelings. But I love you. And I said, I love you. He's a gigantic presence because he is really so wise. He was so wise at 18 and I was 27. And his wisdom has continued to um, be the umbrella over our relationship. That's for having all your freckles in the right place. That's great. What a beautiful way of putting it. That's great. Schlitz was the beer that made Milwaukee famous. And I strongly believe that Henry Winkler was the actor that made Milwaukee famous. I know this because the city erected a statue of the bronze fawns in downtown Milwaukee. How did you react when you saw it live in person? We were there for the unveiling. Everybody came. How is it possible that someone who was told that he would never achieve, he would never meet his dream, he was uh, really, it was sad that you'll never be anything. All of a sudden be at the unveiling of a statue of a character you created in the character's hometown. It is, it's beyond words. It's beyond yeah. words. Mm -hmm. Today, to this day, I get pictures almost every day of somebody from somewhere in the world who has posed with the, you know, I went there a couple, of course, I've been to Milwaukee many, many times as a public speaker or whatever the reason. And I walk up and I visit the statue and there's a couple taking selfies, you know? And I said, oh, excuse me, would you like me to take that picture? And they went, sure. And then they went, whoa. <laughs> <laughs> I'm taking a picture of them with a statue of me. Yeah. Yeah. Did you ever have a chance? Did you have any association with Milwaukee and Wisconsin prior to Happy Days? 
No. Afterwards, my uh, daughter went to school in uh, Madison. Yeah, for two years. And then it was too cold for her, right? So she came back home. Too cold. Yeah, two years. Go Badgers. You became an author in 2003 when you started writing the Hank Zipser, the world's greatest underachiever series of children's books with Lynn Oliver. And these books hold a special place in your heart. Why? Because Hank is short for Henry. Zipser is a woman who lived on the fourth floor of my apartment building. Mrs. Zipser. I thought it was a zippy name. It is. And they are the story of my life as a dyslexic. When I write them with Lynn, I remember very clearly what it was like to be eight and a failure, trying so hard and not be able to do anything. And he has great friends, two friends, who do not treat him in any way except they love him. They are not dyslexic and they understand him. And people, kids all over the world have asked me, how do you know me so well? Mm -hmm. It is one of the great compliments of my whole life. Many of our listeners will know you as the infamous acting teacher, Gene Cousineau, from HBO's hit series, Barry. I once auditioned for the guy that robbed the house on Full House. And I carried a loaded Beretta with me into the audition just to feel the weight of it. Did you get the part? Oh, they freaked out. Now look, you're in a shell. You need to break out. And I've got the perfect antidote for you. 10 cc's of pure mammoth. Mammoth? Yeah, you're gonna play Blake in Glengarry Glen Ross, the movie. I'm gonna send you the pages. Here's my only direction. Let the cat out. We had Bill Hader on before season one even premiered, and he praised your work on on Barry. How did playing Gene change your life? In so many ways. Number one, it was a gift. Number two, I don't know that seven years earlier, I could have played Gene Cousineau. I started therapy because I started getting lost. And the first question that I was asked was, wait a minute, where is the you in all of your story? And the pursuit of the you allowed me to expand. And the more you know about yourself, the more you know about all things. The more you know about all things, the richer your character becomes in every aspect of anybody's life. I will tell you what the the, the comment, except for, oh my God, you are so incredibly beautifully complicated as Gene. I didn't know Gene was in you. And so it has given me a, a vista. A vista, yeah. And by the way, you won an Emmy for your work on Barry and well-deserved. The way you say in your book that the way you played Gene from one episode to another, different tones emerged. And you kind of touched on that earlier, but can you tell, tell us how those different tones emerged? Well, the first year, he was very funny, completely a total narcissist. Some warmth, you know, crept out like inadvertently 
The second year we read the scripts, I said to Bill uh, Hader and Alec Berg, I have to meet with you. And I said, look, I, I don't in any way want to overstep my bounds, but I don't recognize this guy. This guy is not the guy I created in the first year. I don't know what to do. They said, don't worry about it. We'll get you, we'll get you your jokes and we'll get it back. But we're not going to repeat ourselves. And so every year was different. Every year, you had no idea what to expect till the end. Never saw that coming. No. Holy mackerel. Yeah. And now the logical conclusion is in cell block eight, where I am located, I am holding the spring sing next year, Finian's Rainbow. I will produce it, direct it, and star in it as the leprechaun. And all of the other prisoners will play the other parts. <laughs> That's great. You've said that Barry made you a better actor. How? Oh, because it pushed me. The writing is impeccable. If it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. Mm -hmm. A writer is the beginning and the end of entertainment. Without the writer, you got nothing. And the writing. Bill Hader, Alec Berg, and the group of writers they put together, Liz Sornoff. Yes. Uh, there are no words in English. Mm -hmm. There are no words. Henry Winkler, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. Congratulations on being Henry, the Fonz, and beyond. It's a beautifully written memoir. I'm looking forward to your future projects. Thank you so much, Henry. I, you know what? Thank you for inviting me. Henry Winkler is an Emmy Award-winning actor and the author of Being Henry, The Fawns, and Beyond. Find out more about Henry at wpr.org slash beta. It's about, you know, what ha these misplaced values, money, status, living in the right zip code, and what happens when you're stripped of all of that and how you're shunned. Coming up, actress Ileana Douglas joins us to look at Connecticut through the lens of its movies. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Some wag once remarked that after New York, it's all Connecticut. The intent was humorous, but like many sarcasms, it contained the germ of truth. For the small cities which make up the backbone of the nation are all in the same pattern. That's why it doesn't really make much difference that we have brought you to this town in Connecticut. The basic facts of our story actually occurred in a Connecticut community much like this one. But they could have happened anywhere. That's a clip from the 1947 film Boomerang. It takes place in you guessed it, Connecticut. Our next guest is uniquely qualified to talk more about Connecticut in films. Ileana Douglas has starred in many films, including Goodfellas, Cape Fear, Grace of My Heart, and Ghost World. And she's appeared in several TV shows like Entourage and Six Feet Under. 
She's also a notable film historian and a Connecticut native. To kill her homesickness during the COVID quarantine in Los Angeles, Ileana decided to visit Connecticut through the Burt Lancaster film, The Swimmer, which was based on the John Cheever short story. That was a jumping off point for Ileana, the film historian, to explore other films set, shot, or otherwise tethered to the Constitution state. She ended up discovering nearly 100 Connecticut movies. So she decided to capture as many of them as possible in her book, Connecticut in the Movies, From Dream Houses to Dark Suburbia. It's a richly detailed journey through a New England slice of Hollywood history, covering films like Bringing Up Baby, Christmas in Connecticut, and The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit. It's also very personal for Ileana. One of the most famous Connecticut films is Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House, starring Cary Grant and Ileana's grandfather, Melvin Douglas. As fate would have it, life follows art. When she was compiling her book, her own Connecticut dream house became available. She joins us now to tell us about her love affair with Connecticut and why it's so magnetic to so many like her. What I found through my through the writing of the book is that people choose to live in Connecticut for a reason. It doesn't seem accidental that Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward chose to live in Connecticut. You know, you're near New York, but you're not in the city, but you have a proximity to Boston. And it's just a great place to, to live. There's a just a great sense of freedom. But then the, the final funny part of the story was that my realtor friend sent me a listing for a house that I knew very well, (laughs) you know, played in when I was a child. And I said, that's kind of intriguing idea. You know, I said, I did say I wanted to fix up an old farmhouse. And uh, I, next thing I knew I was Mrs. Blanding's uh, work. (laughs) So it's been a, it's been uh, both have been really fun looking, you know, looking back on it now. Uh, it's the you know, I've made a great decision, which you never know until you have to look back on it. But thank God I don't look back and go, why did I leave L.A.? Yeah, that, that's great. And it's interesting you mentioned the 1948 film Mr. Blanding's Builds His Dream House. This movie starred Cary Grant, Melvin Douglas who is your grandfather, and yeah. Myrna Loy. Well, so I'm curious, what was it like for you to write about your grandfather? It's always interesting for me because I knew him as, you know, I know him as my grandfather, right? So we all have an impression. Of course, he was lovable, and I looked up to him very much and wanted to impress him and please him. He was such a movie star, his looks and his charm and everybody loved him. And so I had that childhood idea of him. But as I write about him as a grown up and the more I've gotten into movies, that's when I realized what an incredible actor he was, how similar our careers have been in many ways, because he had aspirations to write, he had aspirations to produce. And, you know, he wasn't always the leading man. He, you know, he transferred to, to character parts he got recognized a little bit later in his career when he was in his uh, late sixties, you know, for performances like HUD and, and then obviously being there. And I just think particularly in, in Blanding's in Mr. Blanding's builds his dream house. 
I, of course, I love everyone in the film. They're br everybody is brilliant. But my grandfather does have the best lines in the movie. I suppose you're wondering what all this has to do with Mr. Blandings and his dream house. Well, I'll tell you. Jim Blandings is part of the fabric of this town. Born and raised right here, he's as typical a New Yorker as anyone you'll ever meet. At least he was. If you want to know the real story, I guess I'm your boy. My name's Cole, Bill Cole. I'm Jim's lawyer and, quote, best friend, unquote. He's the glue in Mr. Blandings. Without his wry observations, there's no comedy because it's him observing. He's the audience. And many times in my career, I'm the audience. I'm the person in the movie that goes, do you see what is going on here? And uh, he's also the narrator of the film. So going back to what you said before, I've never really decided anything, but I do discover things as I'm writing. And as I write, I find more and more, oh, I'm writing about, you know, my own, my own perceptions. Certainly the book isn't about me, but my perceptions and my own nostalgia for my grandfather, of course, leak into the uh you know into, into the process mm -hmm. yeah absolutely which movie made in connecticut gives us the most flattering portrait of the constitution state you know that is wow that's a tough one i might have to say the film the 1947 film boomerang about a true case in uh, connecticut history it's called harold israel versus the state of connecticut and this was in 1924. There was a murder of a priest in Bridgeport. And, you know, obviously this, this was a much beloved priest. Nobody could figure out who killed him. And there was a lot of pressure to solve the case. And they pinned it on a, on a soldier and coerced a uh, confession out of him. And then the, um, the prosecutor, Homer Cummings, was brought in. And they put a lot of pressure on this guy to, you know, put this guy away. And he he stood up, he went and interviewed the guy. And he did his own, you know, sort of investigation and surprised everybody when he stood up in court and said. There's so many baffling aspects to this case that I wish to reserve a plea until I've laid some of this evidence before the court. Very well. Your Honor, such was the strange nature of this case that... I and the gentleman of my office made a detailed investigation into it. We felt that that would be necessary for any successful prosecution of the case. And this case became a landmark case, you know, for prosecutors. This idea that it's just as important to protect the innocent. It is the, the moral fiber of what Connecticut at its best stands for. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I was very happy that you included the 1968 movie, The Swimmer, starring Burt Lancaster. As you say in your book, Burt jokingly referred to The Swimmer as death of a salesman in swim trunks. You, that's a great line. You describe The Swimmer as a great film that is filled with imperfections. How so? It has two different directors. It starts out, it's Frank Perry directing. Burt Lancaster is frustrated uh, but, you know, he, he sees a cut of the movies, unhappy. He gets Barbara Loden uh, fired. She was playing his mistress. 
and uh, brings in Sidney Pollack. They reshoot two scenes, which kind of feel like a movie on its own. You know, they're terrific scenes, but they were shot in California. So the whole movie is like a, a dream. You know, you don't really know what is going on. And uh, it's based on a, a John Cheever short story. He obviously, you know, it's it's writing about the social upper classes of Connecticut. And I, I think he he nails it completely. It's very dark, but it's about you know, something that you have to accept in a place like Connecticut. It's about, you know, what these misplaced values, money, status, living in the right zip code, and what happens when you're stripped of all of that and how you're shunned. And Burt Lancaster was at a point in his career, he was 50 years old, he was going through a divorce, he, he, this was a very experimental time for him. I mean, that's I love Burt Lancaster just as an actor. But what I love about the film is it's not only a deconstruction of Connecticut, but it's a deconstruction of Burt Lancaster as a movie star. You married? What's that got to do with it? You divorced? Right. You want to come with me? Where? Along a river of sapphire pools. I never heard anyone talk like you. Come with me. Be my love. <laughs> that I've heard before. Not for me. You're no different than any other guy. Oh, but I am. I'm a very special human being. Noble. And splendid. It's a, a condemning of everything that Mr. Blandings was about. Get your house in suburbia. You know, Connecticut is the right place to live. And now this is this is the flip side. This is the consequence of people buying into the American dream. We drink too much. Our marriages get busted up. We're having affairs. My one of my favorite lines in the movie is you know it, it's just such a great Connecticut line. I had to point it out. Is uh, He's at one of the swimming pools, and the one whispers to the other, his wife had to have gray poupon. Regular mustard wasn't good enough for her. You know, <laughs> now, that is such a, like, we just know what that means, you know. And I remember, again, being class-conscious Connecticut growing up. And if you were in someone's house and they had gray poupon, you know, it's like, we you knew what that meant. Mm-hmm. Very well said. You also write about the original 1975 version of The Stepford Wives, which was based on the novel by Ira Levin. Why yeah. did you decide to include this movie? Oh, my God. I mean, again, The Stepford Wives, I had thought originally even about, you know, maybe even putting it on the cover. Mm. You have to consider this as a new genre of, of film, which is called Connecticut Cinema. You know, he wrote it. He was living in Wilton. Years later, he said he wrote it about Wilton, Connecticut, and his feelings of being in Wilton and that, you know, people wanted to, this need to conform that I think that, again, Connecticut has. But where it took takes a left turn is the director, Brian Forbes, who is British. He put kind of a spin on it, and the screenwriter, William Golden, they put sort of a spin on it that I think cast 
an impression of Connecticut that Connecticut is Stepford. And so I wanted to write a lot about that. Like what, what did the movie get right? What did the movie get, you know, get wrong, but that be, ever since the Stepford wives, you have an impression that if somebody is going, if, if a movie is placed in Connecticut, something very bad is going to happen. And that's what Stepford wives succeeded in, in doing. They change once they get there. I think the men make them change. How would they do that? I don't know. They... <sighs> oh, Jesus. It's so awful. If I'm wrong, I'm insane. And if I'm right, it's worse than if I'm wrong. I wanted to re-examine it. You know, because people think, oh, it's just a horror movie. And it's like the horror movie part of it is that they wrote this and they thought it was a satire. And they what they what they actually wrote was a kind of a manifesto of bring your wife out of New York where she has friends, where she has a career as a photographer and uh, turn her into a robot, you know. Yeah, very well said. And writer, as you write in your book, writer Linda Arkin said that it dumps on everyone, women, men in suburbia. And Betty Friedan got emotional. She called the film a ripoff of the women's movement and stormed out of the screening room. Yeah, this was the height of the women's movement. And they have this, you know, scene where Catherine Ross is saying to her friend, I'm no bra burner, you know, which was a derisive term. And uh, The Stepford Wives is a movie that really should be looked at and re-examined because, again, one of the great screenwriters of our time, William Goldman, somebody who's always sort of lauded, he's the screenwriter. And he's putting these ideas out there and they're just, you know, completely uh, sexist. And that under the guise that it's a horror movie, it's not really a horror movie in my in my mind. Yeah. Yeah, very well said. You starred in the 2011 film, The Green. It's set in Connecticut and it is pioneering in a few ways. Can you tell us a little bit about this film and share what it meant to you to work on it? Well, yeah, I was so thrilled uh, to be involved uh, with, you know, with this film. Um, the producer, Paul Marcuselli, lived in Guilford and, you know, had the idea to write the, the film. He, he grew up in uh, New Haven. And it was going to be the first, you know, gay film, which sounds sort of, you know, kind of hard to believe now nowadays. But back back then, it was going to be the first uh, gay film made in in Connecticut, gay storyline. And uh, I was thrilled to be a part of it. I, I had always wanted to make a movie in Connecticut and have that experience. I thought you would like it. Mm -hmm. It's a love way, don't you think? No. What are you insinuating? I don't know. Maybe just that our usual places were a little too public for tonight? You are way out of line because I have never been anything but completely supportive and accepting of you and Daniel. Accepting? Accepting? What does that mean? Okay, well, I'm accepting of you and Philip, too. Thank you so much for deigning to accept me, Trish. Well, now you're just twisting my words. The green is about coming home. It's about him coming to terms with moving back home. He's the, the main character is accused of uh, molesting a student and he has to defend himself and the town kind of turns against him, which is a theme in a lot of Connecticut films. And by the end, they realize that, 
you know, that he's he's not guilty and they come back and embrace him and he has a sort of a sigh of relief. And uh, Paul Marcuselli, who's the producer, you know, at the time, again, doing a film like that where you're saying some negative things about Connecticut, he wasn't he wasn't sure that they were going to embrace him. And uh, and they did. So, yeah, it was a great film to be involved in. And and again, one of the great things about the book is that people take a second look at the green um, and some of these other Connecticut films. Absolutely. And Paul Marcuselli, they'll recognize him as the guy from the Verizon commercials. Can you hear me now? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Ileana Douglas, thank you very much for joining us today. It was an honor to talk to you. Congratulations on Connecticut in the movies from Dream Houses to Dark Suburbia. It's a wonderful book. Thank you. Ileana Douglas is an actress and the author of Connecticut in the Movies, From Dream Houses to Dark Suburbia. Find out more about Ileana and Connecticut Films at wpr.org beta. We wanted to set ourselves apart from pop music, but yet at the same time kind of move into that territory. We wanted to occupy that territory. Coming up, Mark Mothersbaugh, co-founder of the new wave band Devo, talks about de-evolution. I'm Doug Gordon. You're listening to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. Hi, I'm Doug Gordon. Welcome back to Beta from Wisconsin Public Radio. If you watched Saturday Night Live on October 14, 1978, you may remember the musical guest, the new wave band Devo. I know I sure did. It was five guys in matching yellow hazmat suits, herky-jerkying on stage as they played their version of the Rolling Stones hit, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. They looked like robots running out of power. Devo was formed in 1973. Unlike most bands, Devo has a fascinating philosophy. They believe in de-evolution. It's the idea that humanity is actually regressing instead of progressing. It's the genesis of their name. To celebrate their 50th anniversary, Devo is hitting the road. So we thought it was a good idea to revisit this interview I did with Devo's co-founder, Mark Mothersbaugh. In 2006, I caught up with him backstage on a tour stop in Green Bay. This piece originally aired when I was a producer for WPR's national show, To the Best of Our Knowledge. I'll leave it up to you, dear Alpha, to determine how well their de-evolution philosophy has aged. Greetings, beautiful mutants, and how may we be of service? This is Nutra for Devo Incorporated, checking in with the many factions of devolutionary humans who have waited so faithfully this past year while Devo gathered its strength for the next offensive. As many of you can see, the road ahead is filled with danger. It's not nuclear bombs we must fear, but the human mind itself, or lack of it, on this planet. Jerry Casali and Mark Mothersbaugh met as students at Kent State in Ohio at the end of the 1960s. They were there when the Ohio National Guardsmen killed four students protesting the Vietnam War in May 1970. Casali was 15 feet away from one of the students who was killed. Mark Mothersbaugh says that the Kent State riots had a direct effect on Devo's worldview. The idea that humanity is not getting better, it's getting worse. Devo's philosophy is summed up best in their song, Jocko Homo. Jocko Homo. 
Evo co-founder, Mark Mothersbaugh. I had a pamphlet called Jocko Homo, Earthbound Inheritor of Ape of Heaven. In it, it talked about de-evolution and talked about evolution being impossible and Darwin went against all the tenets of religion. And so we were able to appropriate a lot of information from people like Jehovah's Witnesses that would come around and they would constantly rail against evolution. We were just trying to come up with some sense to what was going on around us. We saw technology manifesting itself as nuclear reactor problems, people getting poisoned by pesticides and, and just all the chemicals that we were like dumping into the atmosphere. It just seemed to us, you know, with everything that was happening, you know, the economy in our hometown, for instance, we just saw everything adding up to de-evolution making more sense than evolution. I think one of the other places where we were really good at, at not realizing mistakes we were making early on was that people in the United States lack of being able to grasp ironic humor. Something that was pretty straightforward and simple would get us in fights. People would go, you calling me a monkey? And they'd, they'd get really upset. You guys have a really bad attitude saying that things are falling apart, that de-evolution is real. Somebody recently just told me that they have video footage of us playing at a biker club where the bikers started tearing up the club when we were playing Jocko Homo and they were going, you calling us an ape? And they're Basically behaving like apes. Yeah, actually living up to the song, or down to it, actually. But just being a lightning rod for hostility with people that were that wrong, I felt like we had to be doing something right, and so it was inspiring in a way. That was 25, 30 years ago. Now, on stage tonight, Jerry's gonna go, who out there believes the evolution is real? And you'll hear the whole crowd roar. Because now people, they see it all around them. They see it everywhere from the White House on down to all the double think and all the parallels to 1984 that exist in the world we live in. Mm -hmm. The way the world is now, it seems to me anyway, Mark, that Devo is more relevant and timely now. Uh, Unfortunately. Our intention wasn't to be correct, you know, we would have liked to have been proven wrong. Okay, let's go! Devo's fashion sense is probably best described as industrial chic, matching yellow jumpsuits and red flower pot hats. And they move in a herky-jerky way, as if they're robots whose batteries need recharging. One of Devo's greatest songs is actually a cover version, quite possibly the coolest cover version in music history, their deconstruction of the Rolling Stones classic, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. Mother's Ball explains what led to their robotic reinterpretation of Satisfaction. We were rehearsing back in like a 75 or 76 in Ohio, and we, we had some friends who had a car wash. Of course, in the winter, it's too cold to use a car wash, so this guy had a a place where he stored the chemicals out behind it, and he let us rehearse in this room. It was just a cinder block room with no heat. So we were all in there, and it was like about, it was below freezing, you know, there was a lot of snow. We had to drive through the snowy car wash to get to this place. And we're we're staying there, and, you know, we have, like, gloves and coats on, and we're playing. And Bob Gasali started playing that kind of, like, Persian 
goose-steppy guitar part that starts it off, and everybody just kind of started filling in parts, you know, with, with frozen limbs, and somehow the lyrics all of a sudden made more sense to me than they ever did when they were in there, and I just started singing those lyrics over top of it, and it made everybody laugh. U.S. was their 1980 song, Whip It. Why Whip It? I don't know why Whip It hit, hit big. I have no idea. Maybe people like Don... You know what I think it was? I think it's just because of all our songs, it was the one that disc jockeys misconstrued as being about uh, sex in some way. We'd be sitting in a radio station waiting to go and talk to uh, DJs in the next room, and they go, whoa, I got Devo here, and I gotta say, I whipped it just this morning, <laughs> and then they're all in there laughing, and they're like, oh, you pinhead. Nobody really knew it was actually about Jimmy Carter. We'd just come back from tour where people were bitching about Jimmy Carter all over the U.S. and even Europe. They were saying his foreign policies suck. He, he's always fluctuating. He, ne he doesn't take a strong stand on things, and he's not a good leader. Yeah, we wrote a song with it. It was kind of like a Dale Carnegie, you can do it kind of thing. But I mean, on one level, that song was like our dumbest song because everybody got into it as a disco song. People would say, it's such a great dance song. They'd all dance to it, and most of the people that were listening to Whip It, they didn't even know about Jocko Homo or other things we were writing before that, or even on the same album. What is Devo's legacy? I don't know. I think our attempt was to permeate the culture on a number of levels. And that was a conscious goal on our part. And in that sense, Whippet 
accomplished some of the things we were trying to do that, that we didn't accomplish with other songs in the U.S. We wanted to set ourselves apart from pop music, but yet at the same time kind of move into that territory. We wanted to occupy that territory, but yet gives people something new to think about and something new to, to listen to. And we purposely chose uniforms that were not the uniform of the day. People go, oh, you guys all dress alike. We go, there's 20 of you there all with blue jeans on. You're all dressed alike. What are you, what are you pointing at me for? You know, at least we made up our own outfit. You're wearing somebody else's stupid outfit. You know, even now I still meet people who go, yeah, I, I got my ass kicked because of you guys, you know, when I was in high school. You know, I hear that so much. It became a pejorative term, even, Devo. Whether we had anything to do with it or not, they'd say, you're a Devo, you know, to the person that was slightly different at school, and then they'd get their ass kicked by the jocks and the in crowd. And so we did become kind of uh, what we wanted to be, which was like a thinking man's kiss. At our best, we were that. We were just saying, Use your brain. You're capable of so much more than just mindlessly buying the rap and letting someone else tell you how to live your life. Question everybody, especially authority, and choose your mutations carefully. Mark Mothersbaugh is the co-founder of the new wave band Devo. Find out more about Mark and de-evolution at wpr.org slash beta. Well, that does it for this edition of Beta. Thanks to our guests, Henry Winkler, Ileana Douglas, and Devo's Mark Mothersbaugh. They have a lot of zany stuff on this program, don't you think? Beta is available to follow on Spotify or wherever you catch your favorite pods. Don't forget to offer a rating or share with new alphas. And you can keep up with us during the week online at wpr.org beta. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. Beta is a production of Wisconsin Public Radio and Red Meat Productions. Fantastic. Our music and technical director is Steve Gotcher. No, it's a stage name, Mr. Goulet. And uh, he took on a whole new identity with it. Our executive producer is Adam Friedrich. Who would know more about me than me? And thanks to you, our alphas. More beta comes your way next week. Until then, I'm Doug Gordon. Maybe I should talk with a deeper voice. Hey! Yeah. <laughs>